Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Students Talk Security, put on by the Notre Dame Program for International Security. Uh, we are really excited. We have a great episode today. Uh, today, we will be discussing the role of the Army and Marine Corps in the changing nature of war. So we're really, really excited uh, to discuss this topic. We have two excellent guests. Uh, our first guest is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Trey Lachicott. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lachicott was born in Caribou, uh, Maine. He's a 2000 graduate of the University of Tennessee, where he received two Bachelor of Science degrees in accounting and finance. Upon graduation, he received a commission in the infantry. His civilian education also includes a Master of Art in Global and International Studies from the University of Kansas as well as a Master of Military Art and Science in Theater Operations from the United States Army Command and General Staff College. Lieutenant Colonel Lachicott has served the United States Army for 20 years as an officer in the Infantry and Special Forces branches. I'll introduce uh, Captain Cody Brockmeyer. Uh, Cody Brockmeyer was born in Pasadena, California um, on September 11th, 1983, uh, and graduated from a small Christian high school in Oregon in 2001. He enlisted in the Marine Corps in April of 2006 and served as the uh, legal service support section on Okinawa, Japan, where he served as the non-commissioned officer in charge of the Pacific Regional Defense Council's office. From 2009 to 2013, he served as the legal management chief of staff to the judge advocate to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. During this time, Sergeant Brockmar deployed to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and completed his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Maryland University College. In 2013, Staff Sergeant Brockmeyer was accepted to the enlisted commissioning program, attended OCS, and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. He was then designated as a supply and logistics officer. He was assigned to 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines in 29 Palms, California. From 2014 to 2016, he deployed twice to the Middle East in support of Operation Inherent Resolve and completed his Master of Business Administration degree from Northwest Christian University. In 2017, Captain Brockmeyer was promoted to his current rank and is now serving as the Marine Officer Instructor at the University of Notre Dame. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, your interviewers are myself, Clark Bowden, a senior political science major and a member of the Army ROTC program. I'm from Vienna, Virginia. And I'm Evan Muller. I'm also a senior political science major uh, in the Marine ROTC program here at Notre Dame, and I'm from Roanoke, Virginia. Gentlemen, thank you very much. To jump directly into the questions, um, this is, uh, first one is for Lieutenant Colonel Lachicott, and then we'll transition over to Captain Brockmeyer. What role does the Army play as opposed to the Marine Corps when it comes to counterinsurgency operations? So thank you, first of all, for the introduction. Um, and that's a tough question. Um, and I don't think it's as clearly defined as like a black and white separation of roles. Um, in today's military, uh, which has been downsized tremendously over the past probably 20 years, um, those roles and are really shared between all services. Um, there are many occasions where the Army takes a primary role um, supported by some of the other branches and vice versa. So it, to say that uh, one takes a, you know, a, a role of superiority over the other really isn't how the military is built nowadays. A lot of stuff is what we call purple in color and it's of joint in nature. A lot of the task force are organized to operate as such. And we see that on today's battlefield as well as some of our peacekeeping missions around the world. Thank you, and Captain Bruckmeyer. Yeah, and again, thanks for having us. Um, I'm pretty excited. Um, 
This is a very strategic level question. So if you'll forgive me, I'm gonna give you more of a tactical level answer. And I'll tell you that from the tactical side uh, for my three deployments, they can be largely interchangeable. So if we are in a mission and there's no one size fits all leadership style, there's no one size fits all um, engagement style wherever you go to a theater, whether it's humanitarian, kinetic combat, unknown. We talk about the three block war, you could be fighting three different fronts of three different blocks. So if we are assuming that the current operation requires counterinsurgency, um, you're, it, despite some of the different capabilities, it's not gonna be, oh, the army's there, we need to extract them and infill the, uh, the Marine Corps because they're better at this type of coin. It's a doctrine and it's a philosophy. And I think that we've proved concept, uh, especially in the OIF, OEF years, that that can be interchangeable. So, sorry, going off the counterinsurgency question, what experiences have you had in joint operations with regard to counterinsurgency and what lessons have you taken away from those? So I'm going to back up just for a little bit and, and kind of paint the picture from a strategy level of how operations are designed around the world, and especially counterinsurgency. Um, it depends on what we call a geographic combatant command. So that's a four-star level command that's in charge of a geographic area. And they're the ones who, you know, paint the strategy and build the operations and, and fill, ask for forces to fill those requirements uh, towards that strategy. And my personal experience in the combat zone in Afghanistan um, was, you know, it was back in 2009 and 10, and it was what we call now the village stability operations. Um, going into that, I was fortunate enough to be in charge of a team that was what we call the pilot team or the first team ever to go in and set that um, strategy into motion from a tactical level. And what was meant to do is to help those help themselves essentially a neighborhood watch type scenario to put in layman's terms where we help build up the local populace to be able to defend themselves and to protect themselves that quickly um, you know spidered into about 63 other locations within two years so it became very successful it, it morphed into what we call the afghan local police uh, much like we had the local sheriff's office in the united states today um, so from a success standpoint very successful. Now going on the other side of the world in uh, Latin America, I've done many, many uh, kind of counterinsurgency stuff, but that's a very different playing field. That one is more of what we call foreign internal defense where that country requests us to come in and help them with uh, building their capabilities to, you know, counter either internal or external threats that come into that country. So, and I've been into 10 different Latin American countries within the Western Hemisphere, all highly successful and all you know, different levels of you know, stories and everything. But really, it, it's a ground up approach that we as Americans and U.S. forces and Department of Defense are there to help them upon their request. So then we'll, we'll also swing that question over to Captain Brockmeyer, if you could touch on that, sir. Yeah, just briefly. So I've spent a number of years at the Pentagon, which is by nature, very joint in nature. Uh, my first deployment to Afghanistan, I was fortunate enough to be on the staff um, several levels down. I was a sergeant at the time. I don't overspeak, but a part of the staff for the commander of ISAF. So we're talking all troops, uh, both for coalition and American forces. 
Um, so I got to see those two perspectives from the DOD and then for coalition. And then even back to the tactical level in Iraq, uh, standing security with coalition forces. And I'll tell you that when you have those combatant commanders that uh, the Lieutenant Colonel alluded to, and that commander's intent gets promulgated, if you're on the same page, it's just as interchangeable as what I was talking about with your previous question. So long answer short, um, they've been very positive experiences. So gentlemen, you each have drawn the uh, comparison between a general strategy and then a tactical implementation. So Captain Brockmeyer, how would you describe your role as a Marine and as an officer tactically as compared to how the United States executes its general strategy? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. You could give a doctoral dissertation on that. Um, as I'm sure that you're aware, you know, you've got tactic, uh, tactical, operational, strategic levels, but they're not separate. There's a lot of overlap. When it gets down to a Marine platoon, squad, fire team, what have you, um, you've seen how your op orders are, your five paragraph orders. You've got the mission statement and then you go all the way down to tasks. Well, that task becomes someone else's mission statement. And then it gets delineated down into tasks. So we, in our Marine Corps principles of war, we call that unity of effort, unity of command. And so even at the tactical level, you have a common thread all the way up to the president, the secretary of defense, or that local combatant commander, whatever the case is. And that's how you're working in concert with one another. Um, in one of my classes, we use the term all the time, war must serve policy. Um, I don't want to get too philosophical here, so I'll get off my stump. But if you have, if everything you do is nested with commander's intent, it tends to buff itself out. And Lieutenant Colonel, would you say you've had a similar experience? I have, and you know, you know, Captain Brockmeyer, future Dr. Brockmeyer, uh, did a very good job of kind of illustrating that. And I will only add to it by saying, you know, there's a saying that we have called the corporate, the corporal um, strategy or the strategic corporal, it's been worded different ways, probably more commonly known as strategic corporal. What that actually means is the effects on the battlefield, uh, you know, actually go all the way up to strategy. You know, for example, in a peacekeeping environment, a security cooperation environment, the actions of what we do on the ground resonate to the overall strategy. So if somebody goes out uh, as the ugly American, causes a traffic accident and it causes a problem, getting into it, this fight gets thrown into jail in Mexico. Now that affects the entire strategy all the way up by one person's actions. Uh, combat is, is much more severe, you know, with you know, lethal force that's out there and individuals that have to make decisions with lethal force. So that could kill a strategy if the, if the wrong person makes the wrong decision. So uh, they are extremely interchangeable. And, and those actions individual level um, can derail or help um, from operations all the way up to strategy. All right. And this is a question going back to Captain Brockamar. What are some of the biggest challenges of operating in a counterinsurgency environment? And do you, did you feel prepared for those challenges with regards to your training and preparation? What's interesting, and I can only speak from personal experience, is you're excited before you deploy. You've been doing all the training. And then you kind of get that gut feeling like, am I really prepared? I haven't seen this yet. It's been third hand. And then as soon as you need to, you somehow relax and you fall back onto your level of training. So it's a bit of a roller coaster, but the common thread throughout that again is um, 
I, I never felt that I did not have the training. Now, experience, sure. And those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but you think about the Venn diagram between the two, there's no replacing experience. So if we wanna talk about a challenge, um, a six month deployment is not a year deployment, right? And so I remember hearing some people frustrated in Afghanistan in 2011. They say, well, how did we get this wrong? We've been here for 10 years. And a, a colonel in the room said, well, we haven't been here 10 years. We've been here six months, you know, 20 times or whatever the case is, depending on varying um, deployment schedules. And so you think about that experience and that level of training, you have to take that experience, roll it back into the training, but someone else is be tra being trained already in the shoot for the next deployment. It's a living, breathing animal. So there's nothing wrong with the way that we're prepared. It's just that the enemy is thinking, we're thinking, the local civilian populace is thinking, and things are constantly changing at the speed of life. So uh, that's the biggest challenge is making sure that we uh, we're able to adapt to that. And then uh, I'll also ask Lieutenant uh, Colonel Lachikot the same question. So I think the best way to, to say it is, do you ever feel prepared or how do you feel going into it? And, and no, right? The best training on earth doesn't make you comfortable enough to go into a situation and go, I got this, right? It's the same thing for any type of uh, sports, right? So if you can equate it to people playing sports, you practice, practice, practice. And every time you play that first game, there's always uneasiness because you don't know how things are going to go. You don't know how the opposing force, you don't know how the environment's going to uh, react to it. Um, and even those who are practiced, you know, as Tim Brockemeyer talked about, they go in and play games over and over and over again. Um, it, you know, and I don't want to demean, you know, war fighting or peacekeeping anything to, to that of a game. But if you make that comparison analogy, you know that every situation is different, right? Every time you deploy is different. Every game is different when you're playing sports. And that's exactly how it kind of feels. So you go in, you prepare, you have confidence in those around you, you know what you want to do. But when it comes time, you know, that when that first bullet is fired or that first action takes place, the plan never goes according. So you always have to make an adjustments. And I think that's what we as armed forces, whether you're Marine, Army, Navy, Air Force, um, that's what we do best, right? Is we adapt to the situation. We don't get over, overly stressed. Um, you take the situation as it is. You have those around you to count on. And then you adapt to that situation and figure out how to get to success. So Lieutenant Colonel Lachikot, going off that sentiment, you mentioned the difference between peacekeeping and war fighting. In the modern day military, in how much is asked of individual soldiers and individual units, uh, how have you prepared yourself as well as your soldiers when you're going into an unfamiliar environment, um, practicing that adaptability? And do you think there's any implementations that we could see in the training of uh, the military prior to going into those adaptable situations where soldiers and units have to balance uh, the tight line between peacekeeping and war fighting. Absolutely. And I'll actually take your question in reverse. So and in, in, in the preparation, right? So prior to going into combat, some of these tough situations, we kind of had a, a streamlined static training model. Uh, you go out, you train on certain tasks, you do it as an individual, you do it collectively. And then, and then you go off and you, you face the challenges of one of our national training centers um, for, you know, down at Fort Polk, Louisiana, for example, 
or out in California or out in Germany. Um, now with combat, the training has morphed um, and it has to be. So now it's more situational training. So you may be going and doing some of these collective individual tasks, but now you're going to throw a situation on top of it. Now you're going to bring role players into it. Now you're going to bring the human dynamic, which is unpredictable. Um, and it's, so we train to the best of our ability. Um, we, we change environments. We no longer go to those three places. only. We try to find an environment that replicates where we're going to go to and then go out there, stack the situation on top of it, and then put evaluators on top of that and then critique it, you know, come back and then do it again and do it over and over until we feel like that we're, that unit is ready. And, and that's kind of what it is. And, you know, and that for me on a personal philosophy, um, what I've done is, is just try to be good at the basics, right? Don't try to get overly complicated. Try to work on what the basics are and be perfect at the basics as best as you can. And then when things go wrong, know that, hey, I have an alternate, I have a contingency, I have an emergency plan to be able to adapt and go different directions so I'm not stuck or people's lives are put in danger or we're put into an unfamiliarization that can create, you know, that that corporal situation that has a strategic effect, you know, and a negative effect at that. In Captain Brocklemeyer, you've seen the side of deployments and in these situations from both the NCO level as well as the officer level. How has that role shifted for you in both your preparation um, and your preparation of your units? For me, the role has really just shifted as a matter of perspective. Um, what you learn as a prior enlisted officer is when the officers get together in the room and they, I'm using air quotes here, solve all the problems, you forget about the people that are impacted by them. So if you say, oh, the constraint is the armory, well, that's easy. Open the armory at zero three and they can draw, um, draw weapons then. Well, what you don't realize unless you've been that PFC Lance Corporal Corporal is if weapons draws at zero three, they're probably out there at about 1230, which means they're pulling an all-nighter, not to mention the armors and those kind of human factors and human dimensions. So um, even not being the best tactician in the room, being a prior enlisted in the room, I'm able to say, hey, let's, let's take a knee for a little bit and think about what um, manpower, literal manpower it's gonna take to make this happen. Um, and then to your other question about preparation and everything, the Lieutenant Colonel touched on stability operations, a little bit stab offs and things like that. And it made me think of a deployment that we were going on a few years back to a very benign part of the Middle East. And they told us, hey, bring um, civilian suits, bring nice clothes, make sure you're only bringing the best and brightest Marines and sailors with you. We don't want any liberty incidents, meaning um, things that would look poorly upon us uh, overseas, as Lieutenant Colonel alluded to as well. But in preparation for that benign deployment, we still did an entire week-long stability exercise. What if we had to do stab off? We still ran ranges, we still did kinetic preparation, we still maintained. Because if you're gonna advertise a capability, you need to be trained to execute that capability. So when the bat phone rang and our mission changed to a very different part of the Middle East with two and a half months notice, we didn't say, oh, well, we thought we were zigging and now we're zagging, we can't. We said, yeah, we're ready to zag. And so you have to be able to fall upon that. So I kind of gave you a two-horned answer there, but it's part of it is perspective. And part of it is just always being ready. And I'll go back to Captain Brockmeyer with this question. 
What do you think the future of counterinsurgency looks like and how can the U United States adopt a posture that kind of prepares us for that future? Yeah, I'd be making a lot more money if I knew the no kidding answer to that question. Um, I'd tell you that it's really just, again, we have to look at history and be prepared. A lot, uh, we talk about gaming and war gaming. What, we, what would we do if hypothetical country did hypothetical situation? And it was something new. Who are our allies? Who are the bad guys in this? Or think about how common proxy wars are now. It's not really just state on state, uniform versus uniform kinetic action. Uh, things are so different. You think about the fact that we now have a space force talking about the different dimensions of war and conflict. I think you can't be inventive enough. You have to put everything on the table and have an answer for it. So do I know what coin is gonna look like? Coin may need to be shifted. Um, but as I say in my classes, doctrine and philosophy, it's just, a, it's just a bedrock that you move through. It will never hamstring you. It just gives you something to fall back on. So counterinsurgency isn't going anywhere in terms of doctrine and philosophy, even if we pivot away from it in, a, in a, um, application. No, go with Lieutenant Colonel Lodgecott for the same question. I have to echo, you know, Captain Brockemeyer. You know, I have to break out my crystal ball, kind of look and see what the future is. And, and since we don't, none of us have that, it's hard to say what it's going to turn into. Um, is you look at the, you know, the, I guess foundational definition of counterinsurgency, and you know, we got insurgency in there. Insurgency could take many different forms. Um, some can say it could be viral or biological, like we have right now. Right, that breaks down the entire system. You know, who implemented that? Did somebody do it on purpose? Um, who knows what it's going to look like in the future? I think the important part for us is you got history as a foundation, and then you do your analysis on the threats or potential threats as they come up, and you know, determined at a strategic level, and then you, you do the best you can with. Evaluating the civilian situation, the enemy situation, the environment, the terrain, all the basics that we were taught. And then you go forth and train and prepare as best as you can before, and then move forward and try to be successful as you can uh, to whatever strategic ends that we're aiming for. Uh, Captain Brockemeyer jumping in again. I just had a minor epiphany, if you'll bear with me. Uh, I think the future of counterinsurgency is being proactive instead of reactive. Uh, maybe it's not going into a country and saying, let's learn the customs, the courtesies, and how we can best help them as a digging a well, cleaning water, building schools. There might be times when we're dealing with allies right now, and because we don't have that crystal ball, the way we're acting right now will impact current and future generations. So maybe that's what the, maybe that's what the, uh, the secret sauce is, is proactive, um, not being the ugly American and acting right. So in recent years, uh, the United States has seen a decline in our emphasis on counterinsurgency operations in the Middle East. And instead, our policymakers have instead uh, shifted focus towards near peer competitors, such as uh, the rise of China. Have either of you seen in any of your training or any of your strategic operations that you have experienced any sort of transition in training or preparation to get the U.S. military prepared for any sort of combat that may come with the near peer? And I'll start that question with Lieutenant Colonel Lachikot. So that's a very complicated question. And I want to go back to like one of your first ones. What is the role of Army and Marine Corps, right? So parts of the Army, 
big conventional regular army units are designed to do just that. They're designed to counter peer, near peer competitors. They were organized in that fashion. Um, that's how they're typically trained. Our current situation over in the Middle East has deviated that a lot, uh, reduced the force size, uh, become more agile, flexible, and everything else. But yes, I, we've seen a shift back to them reorganizing. Now, when I put on my special operations hat, we are always and have always been designed to go after a counterinsurgency threat. So our idea and, and our focus and where we were designed for is taking on a, you know, a threat that comes from within. So we can help our, you know, our allies counter any type of internal or external threats, as we talked about before. And if we're in a war state, um, we're looking at, you know, helping whatever body that's being, um, I guess the best way is, is, you know, pushed around or bullied, uh, just to go with a layman's term there. And, and our job is to try to be with them and either, you know, coerce, disrupt, or overthrow that ruling body. Um, and so that's, that's typically what we're designed to do. Um, you saw that in early days of Afghanistan, where we linked up with the Northern Alliance. We pushed out the Taliban. As that's going, as that you know progressed, we saw the, the governance of Afghanistan be established. We saw a national military force um, being built, and then our role changed from what we call unconventional warfare, which is that disrupt, coerce, or overthrow of a foreign internal defense. And now we've switched our role into helping them out. Uh, that's a pretty good model for what we see in the future. If we see something like that, that's our, our one role. And if we are going into more of a support role, you know, who, who knows what it could look like, but it could take many different phases. Um, so I'll direct this next question to Captain Brockmeyer. What leadership challenges as an officer do you see during a great power competition, which is largely a peacetime environment? And how do you counter those? Uh, and I've seen some of it already, but it's really just buy-in. So when you get a lot of young, motivated young Marines, you know, they, they want Fallujah or they think that they want Fallujah. They want to kick down doors and throw grenades and things. And there's a time and a place for that. We've been doing it since 1775. But I, I talked a little bit in my previous question about being proactive, that you can, it, sure, maybe it doesn't sound as sexy to that young Marine or sailor, but you can... Um, really disarm a lot of bad guys by digging a well, by building a school, by handing out MREs. There are different ways to do it, um, aside from just kinetic operations. So you have to have that buy-in, because I'll tell you that from war turns peace and from peace turns to war, and it's kind of a cycle, you have to be ready. Um, I gave an example just last night in one of our lead lab discussions about Marines who were standing security force. These are infantry Marines standing security force with non-infantry Marines. And you have to tell them as you walk the line, keep your head in the game, be ready. You never know, you are deployed, be ready, be ready. And then something like the attack on the embassy happens. And by that evening, they're ready to move out and do what they need to do. You have to keep them engaged. So you have to buy what you're selling as a leader, regardless of branch of service, uh, but it's not about you. And they can see through you if you're, being, if you're not being genuine. 
if you're just being towing the party line and drinking the Kool-Aid, they're going to look at you like a clown. And I'll tell you that if you're lying and being disingenuous with yourself, you are a clown. So you have to say war must serve policy and war comes in many different forms. So getting buy-in and knowing your Marines, sailors, soldiers, et cetera, on a personal kneecap to kneecap basis will make that job a lot easier for you. So you mentioned a crystal ball earlier. I'd like both of you to pull this one out because this question is kind of like the, the low hanging fruit, the juicy question that a lot of people are asking in politics today. But do either of you think that the United States will fight in combat against a near peer competitor within your lifetime or the lifetime of Evan and myself? And if so, with whom? Lieutenant Colonel, you can start. Ooh, that one's setting us up for failure right there. Uh -huh. Uh, will it happen? Um, you know, with our, our near peer competitors that exist today, it, it's hard to see it happening for me. Um, we're so economically intertwined. Uh, the decision to go that route would just be a, a colossal and massive mistake. I think the rest of the world, you know, will kind of keep us in check um, as we, if two countries of that power start moving in that direction. I mean, I, I got to think cooler heads are going to prevail um, as we escalate. And going back to dime theory, I think diplomatic information, economic levers will be pulled way in advance before we reach out and touch the military level. And Captain Buckelmeyer? Well, I'll give you a, an interesting answer and say yes with a big giant asterisk. So again, I don't believe that the, I think a lot of times the days of state versus state, uniform versus uniform, large scale, um, is either over or we're not gonna see it again. But war is a continuation of politics when all other means have been exhausted. Not a quote by me, don't attribute it to me, uh, but that's what war is. So where is the line between politics and war? What about saber rattling? What about demonstrations? What about proxy wars? What about threats? What about public perceptions and offline? So I think we're seeing a lot of that right now but I don't think there's an appetite. So I'm not gonna name anybody specifically, pick any country du jour, um, but I don't think that there's any appetite on any side. We want different things at the big level, but at the lower level, we care about our citizens. We care about our sons, our daughters, feeding our kids, et cetera. And we are technologically advanced that we know the second and third order effects. Back to Lieutenant Colonel, I think he had his hand up. No, I just had a, a brief, extra thought that you made me think of, which is, you know, proxy wars, all those little things. Um, you're also seeing a lot of cyber warfare, right? So, so that's picked up a lot. Um, that domain of space, obviously we're putting a lot of money into the space force and we're, we're aiming for that as well. Um, do you, will we see a traditional toe-to-toe -to -toe war? I don't believe we will, but I think we will see other forms of that. And so I think, yeah, I, I agree with Captain Brockemeyer on that. I think we'll see a lot of smaller scale side wars, if you will, between two peer competitors, but, but nothing toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And this is just kind of a quick closing question. What are some things you admire about the other's branch? And we'll start with Captain Brockemeyer. Uh, outside of funding, the obligatory broke Marine joke. Um, no, so I've worked at every branch of the military, and I've forgotten how many other countries. Um, I've even joked at the Army several times, let me know if you're ever hiring. They, 
a lot of that tactical level, I keep using the term kneecap to kneecap, and I'm not just trying to sugar his churro here, um, but that kneecap to kneecap tactical level uh, leadership is very common. And then, I mean, with the Navy, I've been working with them for the past four years, and I could talk all kinds of great things about them and the people I've met in the Air Force. It's such a cliche to say one team, one fight, but every once in a while, the cliches are true. Um, so I can even pick a favorite thing. No matter what fighting hole I had to take next to someone, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. Lieutenant Colonel? Uh, you know, I watched a few good men just recently, too. So Jack Nicholson aside, uh, the honor that and just the, the discipline that the Marine Corps has is a huge thing that I've always admired. About it. Um, on a personal note, you know, as I've come across you know, Marines throughout my 20 year career, I realized that they're the same as Army, just different uniforms. Uh, and then sometimes better looking uniforms with their dress uniforms. So I'll give them that. Um, but it, it is. I mean, we're so similar in, in demeanor, the way that we operate, um, the way that we think about things and deal with problem sets. Um, it's just they have the unfortunate, you know, I guess, uh, I'm not going to say benefit, but they, they're under the Department of Navy and they, and they get their funding a cut a lot, as he alluded to. And so, you know, if they had a little bit more money, we'd probably be this, the, the same, exactly the same, to be honest with you. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. And thank you to our listeners. If you like this episode of Students Talks of Security, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Again, thanks again, and go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.